Ellis Island, disaster response, chain grocery stores. What do all of these have in common? For us, it's today's guest, Matt Daw. Matt is here to talk to us about his work in building preservation as a principal engineer for Keystone Hood's Washington, D.C. office. Stick around and learn how Matt's work has saved buildings all over the state and beyond on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Oh, my Maryland, oh, you carry. Hi, this is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Matt Daw is a principal engineer and director of Keystone Hood's Washington, D.C. office. He's experienced in the structural design and project management of a wide variety of complex architectural and engineering projects. While his project engineering and management experience has encompassed significant new landmark building construction, he's also amassed an equally extensive background involving the renovation, diagnostics, repair, and emergency stabilization of many notable historic buildings. And for our purposes, Matt also serves on the Preservation Maryland Board of Directors. Matt, welcome to PreserveCast. Great to be here, Nick. So, um, you know, I think one of the big takeaways that I've had since being Executive Director of Preservation Maryland is that knowing a preservation engineer may be the single most important thing a preservationist needs to have in his back pocket. He needs to become good friends with a preservation engineer because it seems like every corner we turn around, we need to know about the structural stability of a building. And so it has been fantastic to have developed a relationship with you and to be able to go together and look at some of these old structures. What got you into this? How did you end up in this career? Well, it, uh, it's been a long, circuitous uh, path to where I've gotten. Um, about 20 years ago, I, actually, I, it, exactly 20 years ago, um, uh, I had uh, relocated from New York City back to Philadelphia, where, where I was educated at Drexel University. And I stumbled onto the firm Keystone Hood, where I'm currently a principal uh, in, in charge of the Washington, D.C. office. But the firm had had a history of being involved with historic preservation-focused projects. And one of the founders of Keystone Hood, Nick Janopoulos, uh, who is now in his 90s, uh, retired uh, about six years or so ago. Uh, Nick became a very strong mentor of mine. I call him a father of historic preservation in the structural engineering world. Sort of his claim to fame uh, was being involved with the drafting of the Secretary of Interior Standards uh, in the 60s, working at the time with the National Park Service at Independence Hall. And Nick had taken an approach of repairing and stabilizing that building using reversible approaches uh, with a, a real sensitivity to to maintaining historic fabric. At the time, the Park Service was taking a very different approach, a very heavy-handed approach. So Nick had, at the time, put his foot down and had convinced the Park Service that the, the approach of maintaining the fabric and doing no harm and leaving the building in a better state than we found it uh, he, he convinced them that this was a great approach. So, and that uh, was a big shift too, right? Very, I mean, a very big shift in the '60s. Um, yeah, we. Uh, I think prior to that period, uh, we've used the, the term Trumanization, right, of the White House. Uh, the White House was a great, perfect example of complete gut renovation. You know, you know, really destruction of a lot of historic fabric. 
uh, was a very common approach. At the time, I think it was the easiest approach. It was the, mm-hmm. it become accepted. And that was really the period where the shift occurred it was and in it, the 60s. It seems to me that on the engineering side, although I think a lot of preservationists get into this work because they're excited about maybe the architectural details or the, the look of a building, but there's no quicker way to either destroy a building or lose a building than to lose its structural integrity. Of, I mean, once course. that goes, right. it doesn't right. really matter how beautiful the gingerbread is on it. If, if the foundation is compromised or, or or you really damage it by doing something incorrect, uh, it goes pretty quick. Absolutely. Uh, you know, typical historic buildings, you know, the, the structure is a very important piece of the overall building. It, you know, the structure is the architecture in a lot of cases. Um, but you know, oftentimes we, you know, we see deterioration of building structures um, in historic properties, mostly moisture-related or related to renovation projects gone bad and bad decisions. Right. Now, how, how many changes have you seen just, you know, you said you've been with Keystone Hood now, I guess, 20 years. Has technology really advanced in a big way? Has it, has it changed the way you do your work or are there still some core fundamentals to that? I, I think certainly there are core fundamentals. Technology is changing weekly, it seems, in our industry. So we're always trying to stay up ahead of the curve on changes in technology, new building materials, surveying. There are so many different uh, technologies that have become very useful to us. But I think the core of our work is, we use the expression, letting the building tell us the story. I think the diagnostics of what we do is something that's, uh, I think it's a very creative process. Um, that process really hasn't changed. We do have useful diagnostic tools. What kind of uh, tools would those be? I mean, are you guys using drones, I would presume, to get a look at drones or yeah, technolo- technology that are very useful, especially in a emergency response work or in when we're evaluating buildings which are in a dangerous condition. They mm-hmm. become very useful and we're, we're certainly safety of our staff is paramount. But yeah, other technologies, uh, we've used x-ray technology. For instance, at the Bell Tower at Independence Hall, we were able to use x-ray technology to identify hidden elements within uh, a lot of the wood cladding systems there. Now, is that something that Keystone Hood would bring to a project, or do you subcontract that kind of work out? Uh, we have some capabilities in-house. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, we call them toys, but tools to help <laughs> us do our jobs. But I think if a project requires a significant amount of diagnostic testing, uh, we typically will bring in an outside consultant who specializes in in that field. So when you go to a particularly a historic structure, and, and I know that you've had a really a wonderful career with both new build and looking at older buildings as well, but when you are brought onto a project and they say, Matt, we want you to come in and tell us if this building is is structurally stable, right? And that's sort of a tall order, it seems to me, but I guess it's sort of old hat for you. When you're brought into that sort of situation, what's the first thing you do when you get into that building? What do you, when you say you let the building talk for itself, how does that actually play out? Well, at the onset of a project, where we, we call the due diligence, uh, often in a typical project, uh, the earliest condition assessment due diligence phase um, we do a lot of information gathering, ideally, before we even set foot in the building. So we're looking at old you know, past reports, past you know, renovation drawings, if there are original building drawings, which often is not the case in historic properties. So we gather information prior to, to setting foot in the building. But when we do our survey, we do like to go in uh, with a fresh set of eyes, and we try not to be tainted by past reports or information that's, that may have been presented to us. Uh, we like to formulate our own perspective and opinion on, on the building. We often use the term kicking the tires. We will go in initially and 
uh, evaluate the building. Uh, visual observation, often these are very quick. Looking uh, for big cracks, looking, big uh, concerns, uh, things yes, like that. Yeah, looking for indicators. Red flags. Yeah, red flags or indicators that maybe there are issues with this building, sort of you know, hidden money in a in a development world. Uh, you know, we like to alert our clients to concerns that mm-hmm. they may be running into. Probably a lot of moisture, looking yeah, for moisture challenges too, Moisture right? challenges, cracking, settlement, uh, you know, any, any indication that uh, there may be a compromise. But you know, typically we start from the bottom up. If the building is in a very dangerous condition, uh, we feel it's imperative to start from the bottom up. As, you know, typically you're looking overhead at the structures that you will be standing on uh, as you perform uh, an assessment and survey. So it's not even just the building at that point. You're also thinking about the safety of your staff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and that, I guess, can be sort of a, a dangerous situation, particularly when you're dealing with disaster response. And I know that Keystone Hood has dealt in many different cases with, with disaster response. Yeah, most recently at, in Ellicott City, we assisted with a number of properties there uh, early on. Right. Uh, and for listeners who may not be familiar, Matt's referring to uh, a pretty disastrous flood in Ellicott City, Maryland, in the center of our state, when on July 30th, 2016, the little historic district there received close to six inches of rain over two hours. And that deluge turned into a flash flood that was really destructive. Um, you know, lifting off granite doorsteps and, you know, flying down the street. And Matt joined us within the next day or so after that to try and help and figure out strategies for saving some buildings that many thought were too far gone. And is that a similar experience? Are you used to going into situations where they say that can't be saved? We had our quote unquote, our engineer take a look at it. And so you're sort of in this second opinion phase. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, we're often faced with that uh, issue and you know, coming into a, a situation you know, we've had experience in Haiti after the earthquake in uh, 2010. And did you physically go uh, down to Haiti? Uh, physically, in, yeah, we were in Haiti. Our, so you our, were in Haiti. Firm, yes, yeah, personally wow. in Haiti. So the, within a month after after the earthquake, and it was just devastating. Now, what does that work look like when you're, I mean, obviously, in a sense, those are historic structures. They're old, I'm sure. Um, so you're going in there trying to figure out how to rebuild, what if they can be saved? What is that? I mean, that's that's wide scale disaster. Yes, yeah, that was a wide scale disaster, and probably as extreme a case as as I think a, an engineer would ever experience. And the initial concern is, can we save these buildings? Is there an approach that we can take to physically save these buildings? And initially in Haiti, most of those most of those buildings that we did evaluate, it was a very easy decision. The majority of the buildings either there were catastrophic failures or primarily cosmetic damage and not a lot in between. So I, I'll say that was some of those were easy decisions to make. Uh, we do run into the condition of other engineers may have, may have been at the site before us made certain judgments uh, or, or decisions. And, and that was the case in Ellicott City where we had correct. some other engineers with the municipality who, who had already suggested that in particular a, a set of buildings that supposedly may have been the oldest two standing frame structures in Ellicott City were too far gone. And in large part, thanks to your involvement, we can say that those buildings were saved. Um, So, I mean, really, at that point, you were the difference between those buildings being lost and those buildings being saved. And I imagine that those aren't the only two buildings in the United States or this world, I guess, that have Matt Dada thanks for, for, for still standing, I suppose. It was a fantastic experience. We were fortunate to have been asked to visit right. and offer our opinion. And you know, certainly in defense of other others involved in that situation uh, you know, prior to our getting involved, it, it was a very 
stressful situation. Right. And, and people are thinking yeah. about life safety and, and they don't want anyone to get hurt. And I don't, yeah, I'm not calling into question the, the other engineers, but obviously you came up with a strategy for saving a building that when you and I looked at it, it was, it was sort of standing out of habit or something. I don't, Certainly. I don't know what was yeah. actually holding the, it up. The finishes, the finishes were holding <laughs> yeah, the building the Very up. good yeah. paint. <laughs> so when we return to PreserveCast after this quick break, we're going to talk to Matt a little bit more about some of the signature projects that he's worked on and perhaps if he has some favorites out there. We'll be right back. And now it's time for a preservation explanation. Hello, this is producer Steve. This week on PreserveCast, we're discussing preservation engineering, but we also wanted to have a chance to talk about Black History Month and especially how it relates to historic preservation. For instance, have you heard of the Rosenwald schools? Even if you've never heard of them, you'll recognize the folks that built them. Coming out of a partnership between Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenwald, who was the president of Sears and Roebuck, the Rosenwald Fund supported more than 5,000 schools and other community services in the South from 1917 to 1954. Because of segregation, many black children did not have access to adequate educational facilities, and the Rosenwald schools helped to fill that need What made the schools unusual was that Rosenwald and Washington required for their construction that both black and white community members be involved. This allowed the schools to flourish, and nearly one-third of southern black students during this period were educated at Rosenwald schools. Over 150 of the schools were built in Maryland alone. After the ruling of Brown v. Board of Education, many of the schools closed and fell into disrepair. In recent years, There's been a great effort to preserve these buildings as they represent the dedication to education held by many Southern black communities. If you want to see a Rosenwald school yourself, you can simply search online to find a list of surviving Rosenwald schools. Though, I am happy to say that Maryland has 53 such schools still standing. All right, let's get back to Matt and Nick. You're listening to PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding, and I'm joined today by Matt Daw of Keystone Hood, where he is a principal engineer and director of the Washington, D.C. office of Keystone Hood. Matt, we were talking about natural disasters and, and some of those projects that you worked on, be it Haiti all the way to you know a recent flood project here in Ellicott City. But beyond the disaster side, do you have any particular projects um, that sort of stand out in your career as something that you're really proud of? Oh, certainly. I, did. I was asked recently in an interview in my office, uh, what was your favorite project? And it's not possible for me to really come to that decision. It, it's a it's a tough question. It, it really is. I've, I've been fortunate. I've been involved in a lot of exceptional projects that I am very proud of. And a few that do stand out. Uh, in 2001, I had an opportunity to evaluate 28 buildings on on Ellis Island and be involved with stabilization and repair wow. and essentially mothballing. Now, just out of curiosity, did your family come through Ellis Island? Um, I don't believe so. You're not sure? Hey, not, okay. that I, not that I'm Well, on, yeah. on behalf yeah. of someone's family who did, thank you. Good, I, absolutely. <laughs> but that was an It's a powerful place. It was an incredible experience. And I was there during that process right around 9-11. And mm-hmm. uh, we were actually pulled off, the, off of the island for a period because of 9-11 and then had to reconvene after uh, things settled down in New York City. So I, I think partly that part of that story maybe makes that uh, mm-hmm. 
a uh, very important project in my career. Any big projects in Maryland that you've been pretty happy with? Um, in Maryland, we've done a tremendous amount of work at the Maryland State House. It, it, one of my favorite buildings in the state of Maryland. Yeah, uh, I think that building has come up more on this podcast than any other building in the state. I mean, obviously, it's the you know one of the longest, if not the longest, legislatively utilized buildings in the nation. I think it holds that title, and it's also the place, of course, where Washington turns over command and goes back to being a civilian. The Treaty of Paris is signed there. I mean, it's there's just no end to the amount of interesting and fascinating things that have happened there. Were you involved in the restoration of the old Senate chamber? Yes, just most recently, the old Senate chamber, prior to that, the old House of Delegates, uh, prior to that, the uh, the current Senate chamber. In so the, you've in had Venice. your hands on a lot uh, of that building. Yeah, since 99, it was the first time I'd set foot in the building. Initially, it started a, as a comprehensive condition assessment mm-hmm. of primarily the annex building. But it's led to, we have one project after another, and we've, we've really gotten to know that building extremely well, and working with the Maryland State Archives um, and Maryland DGS primarily right. on those projects. And they've, they've also been a great client to work with, all, all of those involved on the state side with those projects. They've been great clients, and uh, we've had a lot of fun together, the Maryland Historic Trust and many great players. It, it's been a great experience there. Now, that's an 18th century building. There's, you know, there's been a push as of late, as you know, as a, a preservationist, that um, we take a look at our mid-century modern, the so-called recent past. What kind of challenges are associated when you start dealing with concrete? I mean, you hear some people I've even read that there's some types of concrete with rebar in it, that there's no way of saving it, that it's self-destructive, and that some of these modern building techniques are, are really tough to deal with. Have you found that? Is there any thinking on that from the engineering side of this world? Sure. I'd say specializing in archaic structural systems, and archaic simply just means those are systems that maybe aren't used any longer in our industry. Okay. We specialize in dealing with uh, systems that are that are no longer state-of-the-art, but there's always a solution. Yes, certainly some buildings were built better than others or with mm-hmm. uh, materials that were maybe inf- inferior or or, or better than others, but there, there's always a solution. I, you know, recently we finished a project in Columbia, the Howard Hughes Rouse building, which mm-hmm. was an early Frank Gehry design, you know, 19, 1970, early 1970s, I believe. Right. And, uh, and that was a case of a building that was you know, built by a developer, uh, likely at very low cost at the time. So that, you know, they uh, did their best to minimize material in that building. And uh, it was a very difficult building to renovate because of significant structural limitations. It was meant to be a very lightly framed office building. The building was retrofitted to accommodate a new Whole Foods grocery store. Right. You know, with, you know, won a bunch of awards line. for that as well. Significant awards. And, yeah. and it was um, it was arguably a, you know, a very interesting building as a Frank Gehry design. I think it was very important. Uh, I'll call it a historic yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think it has a just has a great story, but the building had very significant structural limitations, which required a lot of finesse and obviously cost to uh, to renovate. But you were able, obviously, to figure out a strategy because it's uh, Whole Foods now. Absolutely, yes. So I guess with the right amount of money, anything can be accomplished. Is that right? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it often boils down to down to cost and down to money. And I think the interesting thing I find in working in historic preservation projects or even just general building renovations. A lot of our clients uh, are nonprofits or organizations who don't have unlimited funds. So it sometimes takes a lot of creativity to uh, renovate these buildings or or repair them without 
causing significant cost. And I, I think at times, sometimes the best approach is do nothing. And when we can take those kinds of approaches, sort of minimalist interventions, uh, where some en- engineers may tend to be on the more conservative side, but having experience working with existing structures, historic structures, I think we we tend to have a better sense of uh, what we can get away without doing, without mm-hmm. reinforcing. First, do no harm. Correct. That's always the first approach is do nothing. And speaking of approaches, if someone's listening to this and they, they are managing a historic site or perhaps they own a historic home and uh, they're thinking about engaging with a preservation engineer or they're beginning to at least think about structural issues concerning the, the property that they're taking a look at, do you have any sort of like rule of thumb? Like if you're going to start working with a preservation engineer, you're going to start looking at these issues, what should they start thinking about as they go into a project like that? Well, I, I think at the early stages of a project, they should do some level of due diligence or uh, an early condition assessment. Mm-hmm. And typically, it may not just be structural. It may be architectural, you know, mechanical, electrical systems. It, at the early stages, those systems should be evaluated, uh, at least at a cursory level. Uh, so we'll often do you know, very quick condition assessments. They may take a couple of hours and a, a quick report early on in a project. And it, this gives an owner an idea of what they're up against. Uh, I think that always should be a, the way to start a potential project. Unfortunately, far too many times we've been pulled into projects where you know, there wasn't enough due diligence done up front. And when you get into a renovation of a, an older building, a, a historic or a mid-century modern, uh, so mm-hmm. to speak, when you uncover conditions in the field in construction, they become very expensive. Uh, when these are unknowns or unforeseen conditions, they can become extremely expensive. So it, you only hope that those on the project have done their homework and had done su- sufficient due diligence up front. So like so much in preservation, get to know the building first, yes. really get your hands on it, get your eyes on it, and consult with the right people. Make sure that the people that you're working with are credentialed, I suppose. Is there something that people should look for if they're looking for a preservation engineer? I mean, obviously, it would be great if everybody could go to Keystone Hood for your purposes. <laughs> um, but if they're you know, in some far-flung part of the country where perhaps you're not doing work or it's not easy to access you, uh, is there something that they should look for when it comes to a preservation engineer? Obviously, the portfolio, the history of doing uh, preservation projects or significant renovation projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, an owner or, or a potential client really needs to do their due diligence in selecting the right team. And uh, you know, it may not just be engineering, but the right architecture firm, the right consultants for, for that group. That's a challenging question. And uh, there are a lot of, within our region alone here in the you know, Baltimore uh, region, uh, there are a significant number of exceptional firms. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have, uh, I call them friendly competitors, but there are some great firms in, in the region, uh, a lot to choose from, and it, it's a, it can be a difficult decision for an owner to make. So um, normally we ask everyone who comes through the studio sort of a parting shot question, and uh, we're not going to ask you what your favorite project you've worked on is because obviously you've already told us that's too difficult to do. But we are going to ask you if you have a favorite building in Maryland. And it doesn't have to be one that you've worked on, although it certainly could be. And almost everyone we've brought through has had an exceptionally difficult time um, doing this. So don't worry if it's hard. But we still like to see uh, where everybody lies on their favorite building. I, I would say probably one of my favorite buildings, if not the favorite building in Maryland, a building that we've we've worked on and have volunteered uh, within the organizations of the Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse and uh, okay. uh, near near Annapolis you know, in, in the Chesapeake Bay. And we 
initially had done condition assessment and some repair work early on uh, for the foundation, for the Lighthouse Foundation. And uh, annually, we, we volunteer our entire office at the Lighthouse in June, usually the last week of June every year. And uh, we go out and strip paint and ha- have fun on their lighthouse, but help them as volunteers. That's awesome. Now, are you just uh, generally a lighthouse fan as well? I, I think so. I, I was told years ago uh, by uh, one, of, one of my firm's founders, Carl Baumert, who retired just a couple of years ago, but uh, he had a long history of doing lighthouse projects. And he said, once you do your first lighthouse, uh, you'll get the bug. And, uh, <laughs> and now I, I've done, now done five lighthouse restoration projects and uh, looking for the next one uh, well, right, there, right now. There's plenty of stock but, uh, out there, I'm sure. <laughs> are. But I, uh, I, we've had a lot of fun out at Thomas Point, and uh, it definitely is a, it's a very unique building. That's very, a great uh, answer. Really, the engineering of that uh, structure is just exceptional and uh, so definitely one of my favorites. Great. If people want to get in touch with you or they'd like to get in touch with Keystone Hood about a project that they're working on or need some help with, how do they do that? Um, go to our website, www.keisthood.com. That's K-E-A-S-T-H-O-O-D.com. Okay. There you can get my personal contact information. Or We have three offices, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and you do projects around, around the country, though? Right? Uh, around the country. We're currently working in 25 states and a number, number of countries also inter- internationally. We go where, where our clients take us and well, that's, uh, travel well. That's wonderful. Uh, Matt, thank you for joining us today. Loved having you here in the PreserveCast studios here in Preservation Maryland's headquarters. And the next big project you have, make sure you come back and tell us all about it. Certainly. Well, thank you, Nick. I appreciate having me. And thank you for all that you do in uh, Preservation Maryland and the, and the state of Maryland. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. This is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Milestones Heritage Area and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. This week's episode was produced and engineered by Ben and Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. You can learn more about them at their website, prettygrittymusic.com, on Facebook or on Twitter at PG underscore Pretty Gritty. To learn more about Preservation Maryland or this week's guest, visit preservationmaryland.org. While there, you can check out our blog and learn about what's current in historic preservation. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Flickr, and Twitter at PreservationMD. And of course, a very special thank you to our listeners. Keep preserving.